Watch this. are you doing? That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? Yeah, well, coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions, no doubt. No doubt in my mind. Good afternoon, dear listeners. You are tuned in to CJSR FM 88.5. This is Moving Radio. I'm your host, Christian Zip, and join me, won't you please, for the next one half hour as we take a look at local, Canadian, and independent cinema. Now, on tap for this week's show, we've got actor and director John Grise. Now, you may remember him uh, from his many roles in television, like, let's say, for example, the series Lost by J.J. Abrams, or possibly the major motion pictures he's been in, like Taken 1 and 2, or, more famously, I guess, uh, is he wears a glorious wig and a very beautifully tight shirt as Uncle Rico in none other than Napoleon Dynamite. Well, we've got him on the phone, and uh, we talked to him about his brand new project, Another Man's Gun, which is currently looking for funding on Kickstarter.com. So uh, listen to the interview with him and look him up on Kickstarter.com. The film again, Another Man's Gun. As well, that interview is actually conducted by someone other than me, um, one of our maybe partial correspondents occasionally, a friend named Eric Newby who's helped us out uh, when he hooked up with Mr. Grise and passed that interview on to us as well. We take a bit of a local angle with Christina Frederick, and we're going to talk to her about a very special event that is taking place at the Metro Cinema. It's called Tanya Tagak's Nanook of the North. It is cinema, uh, performance, and live music all mixed together, and is presented by Workshop West Theatre, so it should be a very interesting evening at the Metro for that. Uh, if you listen closely, then you will hear all the information about it and learn what the heck is actually going on with it and how much it'll cost you to get into the door for this very special presentation. So, it's Uncle Rico, a.k.a. John Grise, on the program as we talk about Another Man's Gun and also a local preview of Tanya Tagak's Nanook of the North. It's all that and a little bit more on this week's edition of Moving Radio. So as promised, here's our interview with John Grise, as conducted by my good friend Eric Newby. He talks about a brand new film he's got coming up that he's trying to get funding for on Kickstarter. Ladies and gentlemen, John Grise. Another man's gun. Um, now, can you start off by sort of discussing um, your your father, Tom, and his movie, Will Penny, which you, that was your first credited uh, appearance on film, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, interesting story was that uh, my father did not have any intention of putting me in that film. Uh, it was my father. You know, my father had prior to that had been directing a lot of television shows. He, you know, this was like his dream project. It was a script that he had written. He was deeply invested in in the in the, in the Western ethos of the country, and you know, and and of course influence by Howard Hawks and, of course, John Ford primarily. And and so it, it was a real, uh, real Western story. I mean, it really fit the genre. And, of course, he had no intention of 
me ever being in the movie, and that was purely that that was the mistake. What happened was I knocked my tooth out, and he uh, he had to take me to the dentist because we were living pretty far from from uh, the dentist, and 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 then he took me uh, to the studio with him afterwards because he couldn't take me all the way back home. The producers were there, and while my father was typing and doing the final rewrite on the script before they were about to finalize for production, you know, I started talking to him. It was, you know, I have three other brothers, so it was a great opportunity. I get to spend the day with my father as he's working, and mm-hmm. of course, he, he had no time to deal with me, and he said, look, you, you gotta, I'm sorry, but you, you, you gotta go outside, and we were at Paramount Studios. He said, just go play on the the Bonanza Street, you know, go play on the Western Street, I know nobody's out there today. As I was walking out the the main building. Coming back from lunch with the producers, they stopped me and said, hey, are you here with Tommy? And I was like, yeah. It didn't take him long to figure out that Tommy was my father. And before you know it, they were convincing him to screen test me. And of course, he, he was like, no, he, my son, he's not an actor, he's an idiot. You know? like, <laughs> I mean, he, he was like, this is not the kid you want in the movie. But Fate. I went into the screen test and and I guess I guess there was something that was more real about what I was doing in the sense that I, I was not so studied as many young actors, particularly children, child actors. They can become very, uh, you know, they have a certain way that they do things and it kind of loses its freshness. I mean, mm-hmm. when they get to be too schooled or too uh, trained by their parents or for whatever it's worth, it, it worked out well so it was a great experience for me it was wonderful to do that being in that movie now looking back on it has it sort of has it propelled you in any way towards the 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 western genre that you're going to be doing for another man's gun without question Mm -hmm. i mean without question in fact i feel like my whole life has been leading to this to do this because i my father was also very uh schooled in in that part of history Mm -hmm. he was you know, an amateur rodeo cowboy. You know, he was friends with Casey Tibbs, who was the world champion bronc rider, uh, world champion bronc rider, and who always was hanging out with us. Of course, my mother was not, to my mother's chagrin, because Casey Tibbs was a big drinker. You know, th- this was the world that my, my dad was, was most enamored with, and, and I just got it purely by osmosis. I mean, to me, it seemed as natural as it comes, and so I have my father passed away in 77, but I have his Western library, which is an amazing library. And I've always known, I mean, one of the things that I thought that I was going to be doing was, um, I, I thought I was uh, going to be doing the deer slayer, which is, you know, the part of the Natty Bumpo, uh, which is kind of predates Western. Uh, it's uh, the last of the Mohicans. It's that whole era. Then I wanted to, to develop the deer slayer, which is part of that trilogy and get, doing other side projects. I directed Pickin' and Grinning and a couple of things that came my way. And then finally, Derek came to me with this script. And I thought, there's a reason that this script is sitting before me. And this script shows incredible, incredible promise and definite talent. And I wanted to uh, change some things. I felt like there were some things that felt forced or false. He and I sat down um, and we had a a really long year and a half, two year period of just getting together once a week, sometimes twice. I mean, uh, sometimes once every two weeks. And we would sit together for about four or five hours and we'd talk through scenes and talk through characters. And we had a great way of communicating with each other. And we found a way to uh, hone this thing into something that was much, 
I felt more grounded and more real, and the relationships became uh, they they flowered, and it was something that really we just did together. And it, and it, as long as it kept working in the right direction, we knew we wanted to do this. And of course, I was completely enamored with with what he had come up with to begin with. So it just felt natural. And and Derek Walker is your partner on this. It's yep. an original screenplay yep. by Derek Walker, and when he came to me and we did this rewrite, I never went into it thinking I'm rewriting this script. I'm just, I felt like I was just nurturing him. You know, this was his first screenplay that I know of. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had been a musician and played uh, in different bands. And that's how I met him. I actually directed a music video for a band. It was actually before he got into the band, the guitar player left and then Derek came into the band and I had been friends with them and he knew of the video and he met me and, you know, we met briefly, but then out of nowhere, all of a sudden he just sent me this thing and wrote to me, and I was like, oh, yeah, that guy, I remember him. Yeah, I met him when he was with this band called Mere Mortals. One thing led to another. And and so, yeah, I feel like I've, I've guided him rewriting the script, but I don't want to, you know, I, I feel like I was taking a directorial dimension as opposed right. to saying I'm actually rewriting. I, you know, I, I if, if I sit down and I, and I do the, the grinding work every day then I, I'm writing or rewriting but I'm, I just was kind of augmenting what was already there just kind of punching it up right so it's like uh, Derek was the quarterback he handed it off to you you're the running back and then you have uh, to get down the field any way you can so you're sort of taking what he's given you in the, in the proper situation and just run with it or else more like Derek's the quarterback and then I say to him as we're discussing the Winnie Winnie I as we're as we're discussing the plays, I'm I'm helping him map out the best way to get to the end. How would you sell another man's gun to a person like me who is not at all versed in the world of westerns? Number one, it really comes down to the story, and it comes down to the relationships, and it comes down to the universal truth that exists. You know, I I, I totally understand where you're coming from because. You know, as as much as I do love a Western, I would say 80% of them I can't even deal with because they kind of have the same repetitive theme. You know, there's a bad guy and there's a good guy. And, you know, it's like that. that those kind of Westerns I, I don't get too uh, invested in. I'm much more interested in the in that era, but approaching that era as realistically as possible, mm-hmm. understanding the hardship and having that be almost like a character in and of itself the hardship and the way things were and the sense of traveling. You know, I've recently been reading Mark Twain's Roughing It. I'm reading it again, and he talks about how long it took by wagon to go from Missouri to California with his brother. It took so much time. It it was, you know, 60 days or something like that. You know, you imagine taking a trip like that, and you're, it's it's crazy. Yeah, rations Um, and dealing with weather and, yeah. Horse. Yeah. And, and places that they stop along the way that they change horses because there's all these uh, little outposts along the way where they change horses. And it's, this is, of course, before there's even a railroad. Mm-hmm. So it's in the 1840s, which is around the same time that Derek and I are, you know, fashioning this story. The places that are offering food at, at these little way stations or wherever, the, you know, these little, little spots, these little inns, it's basically horrible. He, he basically says, I can't, I can't even eat what they're offering. It's so terrible. Part of what they have to give to their quote-unquote customers, but they they save the worst for them, and the rest goes to the you know the rest of the good spoils go to the drivers and the and you know the horsemen. 
it's interesting. But anyway, the point is, is that it's really about the relationships because there's an incredible sense of adversity. This young man loses his father, something that I can relate to. My father died when I was 19. In this case, the guy's 16. He and his mother and his sisters are forced to live on a ranch or a small ranchita with a guy who's pretty much pretty remote with his son and one slave, and he is not a good man. He's he's mean to the guy, mean to the kid, and he's definitely trying to make advances on the guy's mother. And how does one in a situation like that become the patriarch of a family when the father was, you know, everything, and now they're thrown into this situation? I mean, you can take that and and, and transfer it anywhere. Mm-hmm. And how does he help rescue them? And the only way that he can is by taking on a task that is perhaps monumental for a 16-year-old. He has to take a, a wagon across the prairie and pick up a teacher and bring her back to the prefect where they are, you know, that they're, they're becoming a township. He knows with the money that he can earn from that that he can buy a little piece of land and then he can, he'll carve out a place for himself, rescue his family basically be, from being indentured servants to this horrible man. Meet Chris Knight, the Einstein of the 80s. What are you doing out there, floating, sir? His IQ is higher than most people can count. Have you ever seen a body like this before in your life? She happens to be my daughter. Well, then I guess you have. When they steal his pet project, he turns getting even into a science. Roger. (laughs) Real genius. Rated PG. Now playing at a theater near you. Um, we're going to move away from you in this episode. I said before, we're going to talk about the film Real Genius. And yeah. uh, you were in that. Are there any funny or uh, just interesting stories you can tell me about the making of that film? For the most part, while I was doing that film, you remember there was the old Walkman. Oh, yeah. I put, the, I put the Walkman headphones on. And even though I did not have music playing because I didn't want to be disturbed by other cast members, you know, I... To play Laszlo, I felt he had to be so isolated that I didn't want to be distracted by sitting, you know, waiting for shots to be set up and having conversations with people and then walk in and do it. I felt like there would have been something insincere about it. You know, it'd be hard to break from having a conversation and chewing the fat and eating potato chips at craft service and then all of a sudden come in and be this guy. I just, so I wore headphones pretty much the whole time. Oh, okay. And, um, and acted like I couldn't hear anybody. Um, and so I could, but I could hear everything because I wasn't listening to music. Mm-hmm. And then when we shot uh, the other story, I mean, there's so many stories, but that first film that we shot, um, in the first scene that I shot where I, a big scene where I walk out and I have all the prizes and, and they're doing, you know, I mean, all the cards sending to send in for the prizes and they're studying for their final. And it was the first time they've actually had a conversation with Laszlo and, then I tell him I have all the answers and I've memorized them and all that stuff. The scene went exceptionally well. It went really so well. In fact, the DP being Vilmos Zygmunt, it was the first time that he, while he was shooting that film, and he, you know, this is a guy who shot Deer Hunter and he, mm-hmm. Big he, time. Uh, he, he shot Heaven's Gate. He, he, you know, this is amazing, amazing cinematographer. And he turned to me and he goes, I really think this is going to be a great movie. I think that this scene has really turned the, my perception of this film around, you know, he pulled me aside nice. and he was paying me ridiculous compliments, you know. And then he said, congratulations, I think this is going to be very good for you. And then blah, 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 we, 
you know, I start walking off the set, I thank him, and I'm walking away, and one of the second ADs to me goes, man, you were great in that scene. He said, I just, just, and it was a Friday, and he goes, I'll see you Monday. He goes, just hope to God they don't screw it up in the lab. And I said, bite your tongue. That's a joke. Yeah, no, come sure on. Enough, on Mon- show up on Monday. He comes up to me. He goes, the lab for the film? No. I said, what? He said, yeah, the lab. I said, you're lying to me. I said, you're joking. You made, you, you know, you're continuing with your joke. He goes, John, I'm not joking. We have to shoot the whole, you know, we have to shoot the whole day over. And sure enough, we, we had to come back and, and shoot something that was just absolutely clicking on all cylinders. Was as magic as all get out. We had to come and try and recreate it, which is a very difficult thing to do, mm-hmm. you know, because the moment has passed. You you've invested the moment; it's gone. And it, I was fortunate enough that they didn't try and do it right away; that they just like let it sit for a few days, or you know, like a few weeks probably. And then we came back and did it. It still turned out to be a good scene, but it wasn't the scene that it was. Here, Uncle Rico. Grandma took a little spill of the sand dunes today. Broke her coccyx. So what do you think? <laughs> it's pretty cool, I guess. Oh, man, I wish I could go back in time. I'd take state. This is pretty much the worst video ever made. Napoleon, like anyone can even know that. You know what, Napoleon? You can leave. You guys are retarded. <sighs> now, I, I gotta ask you, when you're acting out a scene in a movie, do you ever pretend that there's a score or maybe a particular song playing uh, in the background to get uh, you into character? That is a great question. I'm, I mean it. This is a, an amazing question because, okay. no, one, nobody's ever asked. Okay. That's number one. <laughs> number two, whenever I am creating a character, mm-hmm. I always think in terms of music. I think in terms of actually, even in the way a character might speak, I think of it musically. I think of him taking his rests and his, you know, it, whether it's the moment becomes legato or staccato or syncopated. There are many times that I do think in terms of score, but it's my own mental score. Mm-hmm. It's very, very rarely that I will think in terms of somebody else's music, but sometimes something will come through that says absolutely that 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 is that, that this would be perfect when i did running scared with peter himes i remember i can't even remember the song i suggested to him but you know being that it was such a up up comedy i i was i kept thinking in terms of trying to add a song to it that would kind of mm-hmm. give it a little more heart and make it a little more special you know and i was thinking in terms of like simon and garfunkel or something but I always do, and and particularly when it comes to a, a really emotional scene, sometimes to find a really emotional song is helpful. You know, it's it's helpful. It's like to listen to that song before you go in and play that scene. It I hear it in my head sometimes. You know, uh, that just has this. It helps to resonate if it, it requires you know something a little deeper. You know. I'm glad that no one's ever asked you that because uh, no, I've nobody, always wanted to. No, I've great, always wanted to ask a, a real actor if that's the case. Thank you. Such a pertinent question, and it's such a a a, a uh, because it, it really does. You know, like I I do think, and I don't think I'm any different than other actors who use whatever it is they use. I mean, actors are always. You know, it's interesting. I watched Bruce Dern on. I think it was Jimmy Kimmel last night. Okay, and I, I really. I was upset that they didn't interview him longer. Oh, I love Bruce uh, Stern so much. The, 
oh, he's amazing. And so he good. was in Will Penny. So he's a guy that, first off, he has a memory like a steel trap. Mm-hmm. And he can tell me things that happened 40 years ago, 50 years ago, like it happened yesterday. He has that kind of memory. And yeah. when we did our astronaut farmer, we actually made a bet on a sports game that I forgot about. And, and the next time I saw him, which was like seven years later, I was walking across the lot at CBS and turned to me. He goes, you still owe me 50 bucks. <laughs> and, then he, and then he told me the game, the spread. And oh, the really? And by how much. And I was like, oh my gosh, I so forgot. I totally <laughs> forgot. <laughs> Thanks to Mr. Newby for hooking us up with that interview with the fantastic Mr. Grise and great stories about real genius and his brand new film. Hopefully, once he gets the Kickstarter campaign started up, Another Man's Gun. Coming up next week is a very interesting event at, once again, of course, the Metro Cinema. It is going to be Tanya Tagak's uh, Nanook of the North. Now, you might have heard of the last part of that before, Nanook of the North, as being one of the more famous documentaries in the history of cinema. Some people say the first documentary of all time. Uh, But this is a little bit different slant at the film. So we're going to talk to our guest today, Christine Frederick, all about that. This presentation of... uh, Tanya Taguk's uh, Nanook of the North is going to be at the Metro Cinema on Thursday, January 30th at 7.30 p.m. It's presented by Workshop West Theatre in partnership with Alberta Aboriginal Arts. And you can get tickets for $35 uh, or it'll be $25 for self-identifying Aboriginal peoples, students, seniors, and Metro members. Christine, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Christian. This is wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's my pleasure. Anytime we can talk about something uh, interesting that's happening local, and this is fascinating, uh, then that's always a cool thing. I, I mentioned the title of the film, which some people may be, identif- may be able to identify with, and some people are like, well, I've heard of it, but I have never seen it. Mm-hmm. Maybe let's talk a little bit about what the audience can expect from this event and, and what exactly Tanya is going to be doing uh, in connection to the film. Yes, this is a great start because... What it is, is a, it's a collaborative kind of work. So we've got the film, which is, you know, from 1922, black and white film, which, you know, has, has its own controversy with it. And, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in a minute. But what, what ends up happening is Tanya Takak and the, the art, musical artist that she's working with create the live soundscape to go along with the film. So you take a film that has, you know, some questionable, you know, integrity to it, and then you add Tanya Takak on top of it, and she is absolutely rooted in, in, in traditions, but she's most definitely a contemporary artist. So all of a sudden you put her and the music that she's creating on top of and in front of the film, and you have outstanding contemporary art. We mentioned the uh, the actual film itself uh, that'll be presented in the background, like on the screen, and then you'll have the band that is playing with Tanya and kind of mm-hmm. scoring it as the film unfolds in front of you. Uh, so it makes for a unique kind of musical performance slash live uh, cinematic experience.
like when I was watching some of the YouTube footage of things of the, of the presentation that they had done at TIFF, uh, fascinating stuff, and really only uh, a, a morsel of, of what you probably are, you know, expected to enjoy at the show itself. Maybe could you talk to us a little bit about uh, Tanya's role in this? You alluded to it before, how she uses her voice to communicate uh, the narrative and the tone of the film and the experience that Tanya maybe goes through, just a little bit from your perspective. Well, in, in the true artist form, she's taking something that is rooted in her tradition uh, with throat singing. And for those of us who have been lucky enough to witness throat singing, it is absolutely astounding, mesmerizing form of, of traditional art. Now, what Tanya has done, in, in, in my view, uh, you know, as somebody who works in Aboriginal art, she's contemporized it in a way that is vital, like it has a vitality to it. It it, it captures the audience, both with their, you know, with their auditory intake, you know, hearing it, but she she moves across the stage as well, and she's embodying the emotions and the the spirit of of you know, both history with regards to the film, but also a sense of contemporary life. I mean, she's an astounding performer, and uh, I think I've said that a few times now, <laughs> but she really is. She's mesmerizing. She's got such dimension to her that a person can't help but be completely mesmerized by what she's doing. One of the things that Aboriginal artists contend with almost on a daily basis, and I would even say Aboriginal people contend with on a daily basis is this idea that we are the vanishing Indians, that we weren't meant to be in this millennium, that we were supposed to die out, essentially. Um, And when we are portraying uh, different aspects of art, different disciplines of art, I often get questions about, you know, what does this mean, contemporary? Shouldn't you be doing whatever stereotype they they consider? So, for example, I usually host a teepee downtown in the summer as part of the Works Festival, and we portray um, emerging contemporary Indigenous art, a lot of it done by youth. It's clearly an artistic display. We have a few cultural aspects you know, a buffalo robe on the floor and some smudge. And we engage people daily on conversations about art and culture and expectations of culture and exploitations of culture. It astounds me that there are times when somebody will come in with very specific expectations. In fact, I've even had people point blank look at me angrily and be like, why aren't you in a native costume and over a fire cooking bannock? And I kind of look at them and say, well, this is a contemporary display. It's kind of a backlash of expectations of culture that I, that myself and, and people like Tanya, Takak, other artists are supposed to sort of reflect a mainstream concept of culture or without acknowledging that there's a huge breadth of experience and breadth of, of actual display of culture that is both contemporary and exciting and technological. It should be a fascinating evening of, of theater and music and culture. It's Tanya Tagak's Nanook of the North. You can get tickets right now. They're $35 uh, for the Thursday, January 30th presentation. That's at 7.30 p.m. at the Metro Cinema if you get tickets ahead of time. If you decide to pick them up at the door, you can do that too. And uh, remember that for uh, self-identifying Aboriginal people, students, seniors, and Metro members get a little bit of a break there. It's $25. It is a one 
evening only performance. So I, I highly encourage people to go out and see it uh, and experience it, whether you're familiar with the film or not, or even familiar with Aboriginal culture. I really want those people who talk to you in the summertime to come see the show. So, <laughs> and anybody curious to see something? And I think anytime you can get live scoring a film happening and happening in such a unique way, I think it'd be an incredibly interesting and fulfilling experience. Thank you so much. Exactly. We're really hoping that this performance and the other work that Alberta Aboriginal Arts does, does, and along with the work that Workshop West does, we're all about continuing the dialogue of culture, of the collective identity that we work towards as, as Canadians. All right, that about wraps it up for this week's edition of Moving Radio. I'll remind you once again, kickstarter.com is the place where you can find out all about Another Man's Gun potentially being made by director John Grise. And if you want to pick up tickets to Tanya Tagak's presentation of Nanook of the North at the Metro Cinema that's jumping off next week. You can get them at the door, or you can also get them online early. All you gotta do, just search it, Google it, it'll take you right to it. Ticks on the Square and other places where you can also get the tickets through. A little preview of what's coming up on the next edition of Moving Radio. It's the documentary Doomed, all about the ill-fated film that was supposed to be the cinematic premiere of the Fantastic Four that has never seen the light of day. Well, unless you're on the internet and you've ripped it already. Uh, A fascinating, interesting, I guess, anti-superhero bloated budget comic book adaptation if you're not into those $200 million pictures that they make sometimes. And uh, also as well, I want to remind you, if you want to check out old episodes of Moving Radio, you can find us on our SoundCloud as well as on iTunes. It's all free, so check us out. Just put in the key search word of Moving Radio, and you will find us as well. You can follow me on Twitter, at Moving Radio, and also you can see me on Instagram for other movie-based photos, and that, once again, is also Moving Radio. Coming up next is the finest in feminist radio. Don't touch that dial, because it's Adam and Eve.